Okay. If you have Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 2. I'm going to be continuing my series on the Gospel of John today. Uh, we'll finish up chapter 2 uh, with this message. And so if you, um, if you have a Bible or some type of electronic device to read scripture on, or you can just look on the words that Errol's going to so graciously put up there for us. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews had responded to him, what sign will you show us to prove that you have authority to do this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll rise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken over 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word, for the power and the authority that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would use me today to speak your word to your people in power, that it would have its full impact on them. We ask this in Jesus' name. So each week, I kind of I have lots of resources I draw from from a little bit of everything, and and so in in today's mixture, you'll find a little bit of John Piper, a little bit of David Guzik, a little bit of Chuck Smith, a little bit of Tom Zawacki, kind of all wrapped up together, and so it's. It's kind of nice having those resources to be able to draw upon when you put a message like this together. So let me set the stage for you. Actually, verses 13 and 14, they set the stage. It says, when it was almost time for the Jews' Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now understand, Jerusalem would have been very crowded at this time of year. Thousands would be visiting uh, Jerusalem for, for the coming Passover. The Temple Mount would be particularly crowded. No doubt Jesus saw many people doing business in the outer courts of the Temple. So in a place that was created for, designed with the purpose of prayer and acts of worship, we find pens of cattle and sheep, cages of pigeons. We find merchants sitting around waiting to make transactions and there were, there were money changes. These were people who exchanged travelers' money into the right currency so that purchases could be made. The exchange was from Roman currency to Jewish currency. 
kind of sort of like when we cross the border from Canada into the U.S., you, you do. <coughs> You do a financial exchange, right? When Nadine went on, and I went on vacation to see, see my dad a, a few months ago, her mom. We crossed the border. We knew we were going to need U.S. funds, right? So we went and, and got some currency exchange. Well, it's kind of like that here. Why this setup? The law required that sacrifices of cattle and sheep and pigeons or birds were made as a part of their worship. Many of the worshipers they would have been traveling from far. They had traveled a long way. And it just wasn't feasible to bring um, these sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, with them on a long journey. Uh, so this arrangement was made to, so that animals would be readily available for purchase. It made things more convenient for the worshipers. But it came at a price. Now Jesus has a very strong reaction to this, right? I mean, in anybody's... Anybody's take on this, this is a really strong reaction. Verses 15 and 16. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changes, overturned tables. And to those who sold doves, he, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine if you're one of the disciples watching this? It had to shock them, right? Jesus just enraged. It's obvious that Jesus did not approve of what he's seen there, but why not? What's the problem? Well, if you look at the other Gospels, you see something that I think is both different and the same. In um, this, this uh, an account of Jesus doing this, of, of driving the money changes out of the temple, is recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. Um, but I'm not sure that it's exactly the same event. In, in Matthew 21, Jesus says, It is written, uh, He said to them, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now John doesn't specifically report either of those two things. He doesn't say it's a house of prayer or that they're robbers. Um, it makes me wonder if this really is the same event. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus drives out the money changes of the temple, but he does it at the end of his three-year ministry. We're only in chapter 2 of John. John is recording this at the front end of Jesus' ministry. Um, it could be that John had moved the event and isn't claiming to be in chronological order. But for different reasons that I've researched and studied, I'm inclined to think that this is actually a different event, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are describing something that happened later on. But it's different, but it's similar. So, in verse 16, Jesus says, to those who sold doves, he says, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. You see, it was a corrupt system. It was a very corrupt system. The worshipers had to bring approved Sacrifices, sacrifices approved by the Pharisees and the priests. The high priests, this is where some of the corruption comes in, the high priest owned the stalls for the animals. Okay? So again, a cut of the action here. Right? Only their animals will be approved. And it's going to come at a premium. And the money changes are not just exchanging the money like happens when we cross the border. There's a 25% surcharge on top of it. Right? They're, they're, they're just absolutely milking these people. They're just being brutal to them. 
Now, Jesus doesn't say here in John chapter 2 that the, money, that the sellers of money changers are robbers, but they absolutely are. And he doesn't say that this place is a house of prayer, though it obviously is. Well, what does he say? He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, the word market here, used in, in the Greek, we get the English word emporium um, from the Greek word used here. Think bazaar or flea market or farmer's market. Now, I love our, our local farmer's market, but I don't think any one of us would mistake it for a house of worship, right? I mean, it's a great place and there's great stuff there, don't we know? But none of us walk through there and think, oh, this is church, right? We're going to worship here. Now, Jesus is furious, right? He's made this whip. He's driven them out of the temple. He overturns the table. He scatters the money. And he's saying, probably in a very loud voice, get these out of here. There's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, in my family, if somebody overturns the table, or if they scatter stuff all over the place, right? That, that's considered furious. We had a few occasions in my house growing up that looked like that, right? Maybe some of you guys did too. Right? It doesn't give you any warm fuzzies. Nobody's happy when this is happening. It's very upsetting. Jesus is really upset. He's furious. Matter of fact, the, the word drove, he says he drove them out of the temple. Do a word study. Strong's Concordance. Take a look at that word drove. It means to drive out, to cast out, or to send out with a notion of violence. Scattering the coins across the floor, flipping over the tables. That's pretty violent. If that happens at your house on Christmas when all your family's together, now that might be a possibility with some of our families on Christmas. That would be considered violent, right? This is violent. I mean, so much for the effeminate Jesus, the Mr. Rogers with a beard version of Jesus, you know? The wimpy version of Jesus we so often see portrayed in the movies. This is not the actions of an effeminate, wimpy Mr. Rogers kind of guy. Right? He's, he's not intimidated and he's not afraid to let them know what he thinks. And as the disciples witness this, the scripture tells us that they're reminded of, of the text um, and they get it from Psalm 69.9, where it says, Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. I like the way the New American Standard says it. It says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Jesus goes into his father's house. Zeal, passion is stirred up within him, and he feels on himself the insult, the reproach of this setup. And apparently it's no small thing. This word reproach here means scorn or insult or taunting from an enemy. Think Goliath taunting David. That kind of, that kind of reproach. It also refers to shame and disgrace. Now I love the word in Psalm 69.9, uh, zeal. I love that Hebrew word. It's the word kana. And it means ardor or zeal. It means the zeal of men for God, the zeal of men for the house of God, and the zeal of God for his people. Now that word ardor, if you look up a few different de definitions for it, you get this. The 
free online dictionary defines ardor as fiery intensity of feeling. Google's online dictionary defines it as enthusiasm or passion. Webster's has a, defines it this way, as a strong feeling of love. So, so this Hebrew word kana that's used here, zeal, refers to God's passionate love for men and man's passionate love for God. And that's the reason why I got that very same word tattooed on my left forearm right there. That's the word kana, passion. One of my high values is passion. The other is freedom. Jesus is passionate. Make no mistake, he's fired up. He's passionate about his father. And he's passionate about us. So why is Jesus so angry? I mean, most of us, even if we've only read a little bit of scripture, we've heard this story before. Why is he so, why is Jesus so angry? Why was this practice so very offensive to him? Well, let me tell you what I think, what some of my research has found. The outer courts of the temple were the only place where the Gentiles could come and worship. It's the only place. At the time, at that time in history, it was the only place they could worship God. They had no other options. And there was only one way they could worship God. It wasn't just that the merchant's presence spoiled the Gentiles' place of worship, or that their blatant dishonesty, their corruption, defiled the place, though that's true. They extorted money. And by doing so, they perverted the relationship between God and man. That's why Jesus is angry. People came, and they perverted what's supposed to be, at that time, the only way that people can relate to their God. And these money changers and these merchants and these Pharisees and priests, they've perverted that. They've adulterated the way God and man are supposed to, re to relate. Jesus takes relationship very seriously. In his own words, he says, this is my father's house, the place where people meet with my father. where they related. This is where they interacted. This is the place where the Father is known and loved and treasured above all. This house is about knowing and loving and treasuring a person, my Father. In this temple, my Father has supreme place. Psalm 84.10 says it well, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I like what Psalm 73, 25 says as well. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. God alone should be treasured in the highest place, in that place. Now notice here, there's no reference to the people who had need of the resources in order to worship. Jesus, there's no, um, there's no rage, no fury, no anger directed toward them, right? The travelers who are buying sheep and pigeons and cattle so that they can properly, according to the prescribed order, worship God in that time. 
He's, he's not angry at them. He's angry at the people who are selling the stuff. Right? He's angry at the money changers who are taking advantage of the situation. All his anger is directed at those who are selling and handling currency. Jesus could see through their facade, their veneer of religious helpfulness. He could see to the heart. Matter of fact, in verse 25, at the end of the text that we used to, he said, the scripture says he knew what was in each person. He knows what's in the heart, man. Why is Jesus so angry? He's angry at religion. He's angry at a religious spirit. He's angry at a religious system that makes it more costly, more expensive, and more difficult for people to connect with God. And that's what religion does. It puts layers and obstacles and blockades and walls and hoops that you have to jump through again and again and again in order to relate to God. That's what Jesus is upset with. He's upset with the spirit of religion. And not only are these religious, is this religious pharisaical system manipulating people for personal selfish gain, they're doing it in the name of God. Of them, Jesus would say in Luke 11, 46, he says, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus is angry, I believe, because he saw a religious system made by men not advancing communion with the Heavenly Father, but hindering it. Not flowing with the love of God, but flowing with the love of money. I think St. Paul had these people in mind, these scribes, these Pharisees, these, these um, money changers, these priests. When he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Ouch. Ouch. This is who, this is who, I think it's these very same people, the one that Paul's writing to Timothy about, that Jesus is dealing with at the money changers table and the people who are selling. Jesus made it very clear that underneath the religious legalism of the Pharisees, he saw the love of money. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Luke 16, 13, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Luke comments on this in verse 14, the following verse. He says, the Pharisees who loved the money heard all this, and was sneering at Jesus. It's clear that Jesus' words hit the mark. You don't get sneered at unless you say something that pushes somebody's button. Believe me, I know. I've been sneered at a few times, believe it or not. 
Now pay attention. The only people group that Jesus ever gave a hard time to, ever, were the religious people. They're the only ones. And he did it consistently. He did it repeatedly. But that's the only people group. And in John's Gospel, we see it starting right here at the end of chapter 2. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they got a hard time from Jesus. It's interesting to note that the loan sharks, the prostitutes, the unclean lepers and the sinners, they received mercy and grace. Jesus would eat at their table. They'd wash his feet with their hair. He's fine with them. It's the religious folk. It's the arrogant, self-righteous religious people. You want to know? You want to know a sure sign of somebody who has a religious spirit? Arrogance and they're rude. Two telltale signs of somebody who's operating in religious spirit. Self-righteous arrogance, and they're rude. Listen, people, those are not the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5, all right? It's not one of the gifts of the Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Jesus said, all people would know you are my disciples if you love one another. Not if you're arrogant, not if you're self-righteous, not if you're rude. The only people group, the only, the exclusive people group that got a hard time from Jesus. Religious people. The religious experience Jesus' fury. That should open our eyes. Listen, his ways are not our ways. We're not, we're not immune from this in our Western culture here. Yeah, just as many religious people operating today as there was then. And many of them are in the same seats and positions of power today that they were then. And they're just as wrong today as they were then. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate change agent. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is letting them know that day that, hey, this is a new day. The old has passed away. The new is coming. That he himself will remove every hindrance, every obstacle between man and God, including religion, including a self-righteous, arrogant, rude religious spirit. He's going to remove that. He himself will remove it. Anything that stands between him, stands between people and their God, he's going to, he himself has come. Part of the promise of the incarnation is that he would remove all those obstacles, religious or otherwise. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is letting them know that there's a new sheriff in town, and it's him. And they question his authority. That's their response to this. He scatters their money, turns over their tables, tells them to get out of his father's house. And they question his authority. It's their response in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him and said, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all this? You know, it wasn't necessarily a bad question. Anyone who would drive the merchants out of the temple courts claimed to have authority to do it. And the Jews want to know if Jesus really had this authority. The problem is they demanded a sign from Jesus to prove it. And not the least bit intimidated, Jesus gives to them the ultimate sign. Though they missed it. In verse 19, Jesus answers their question. He says, destroy this temple and I'll rise it again in three days. Now this is the very accusation they brought against Jesus later on in his trial. He said he'd destroy the temple and he'd rebuild it in three days. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his very body. 
They thought he was talking about the actual building, the, the physical temple. They thought he was talking about this monstrous building that Herod had begun to construct for the Jews. Let me just say a word about that temple. Herod died before it was ever finished. Um, he had drawn the plans, he'd begun the construction, but he never completed it. Um, he never did see uh, the completion of this enormous temple with enormous, huge, enormous stones. Um, Jesus is about 30 years old at this point, and, and they'd already been working on this temple for 46 years. It would take them another 19 to finish it. That's a huge temple. And these stones were, uh, were incredibly large and, and heavy. According to Josephus, um, these stones weighed as much as 140 tons each. Okay? Part of the reason why it's probably taking them so long to build this thing. So rebuilding Herod's temple in three days would have sounded ridiculous. They missed the point. Jesus was referring to himself. So in verse 19, Jesus answers their question. He says, destroy this temple. Listen, he says, I will raise it again in three days. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus said that he would raise himself from the dead. Referring to his own life in John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is literally speaking about his body as the temple. I could even imagine that maybe he gestured to himself. You know, I could kind of see it in my mind's eye. You know, destroy this temple and I'll rise it again in three days. Jesus knew that these religious leaders would try to destroy his body. That's another telltale sign of a religious spirit. It always tries to destroy the body of Christ. You want to recognize a religious spirit? Arrogance. Rude self-righteous, and it tries to destroy the body. That's a religious spirit. That's what Jesus was angry about. Jesus also knew that ultimately they would not succeed. Verses 20 to 25, it, was, it has taken 46 years to build a temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? John comments on this in verses 21 and 22. He says, but the temple uh, he had spoken about was his body. After he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus spoke. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, this is verse 23, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each people, each person. Jesus didn't need testimony about people. He knows people. He knows what's inside of people. He already knew them. How did Jesus know them? How did he know what was in them? Well, he knew what was in these people in the same way he knew what was in Peter when he first met him. In the same way that he knew Nathaniel when he first met him. We've already gone over that in 
chapter 1. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men. When he saw Nathanael, he said, Surely here's an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Jesus could see his heart. He knew Nathanael's heart. He knew Peter's heart. He saw Peter, he says, Your name is Peter. He says, on, Your name is Rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. Jesus prophesied to Peter. He prophesied to Nathaniel because he had prophetic revelation about both those guys. He's got prophetic revelation about the people here too. He looks at them, and in looking at them, he knows things about them. He knows by the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows by the gifts of the Spirit. He knows by revelatory and prophetic gifts of the Spirit. That's how he knew that they were religious. He knew by the gifts, the same, the very same gifts that are fully active and alive and available to us to this very day. So in summary, I'll let you guys get out of here early, go home, maybe beat some of this nasty weather. So again, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus passionate about relationship. And that he, here we see him dealing ruthlessly with anything that hinders relationship between God and man. We see Jesus operating in the gifts of the Spirit yet again. We take note of the fact that Jesus comes as the universe's ultimate change agent. And he's bringing that very same change into our lives today. Change is not a dirty word. Change is a good word. It's a good thing. It's a sign of life. John began chapter 2 with a miracle of conversion. The, the changing of water into wine. And then we see a miracle. Then we see a work, rather, of cleansing. The cleansing of the temple. And this is how Jesus works in people's lives. Changes them, and then he cleans them up. That's the way of grace. First he brings the change, then, then comes the cleaning. If we reverse that process, if we require of people that they have to be clean first before they can come to Jesus, before they can have that conversion experience, that's the way of the law. That's not the way of grace. That's the way it works. That's man's way. The way of grace is first comes that conversion. First comes that transformation, that relationship. Where there's an interaction between God and man, and the cleaning comes later. That's the way of grace. Do you see the difference? It's one of the things I love about Communion Church, and what I love when I first read about you guys before I came here. One of the values that we communicated was this scenario, that first you belong, then you believe, and then you behave. First you belong, then you believe, then you behave. The behaving part, that's the cleaning up part. That comes after the work of conversion, or transformation, or salvation. That's the belonging part. You're welcome. You're welcomed into the family first. The believing well, the behaving well, 
is part of the process that follows after the belonging. Well, religion will turn that around. I've been parts of churches where, um, and it's subtle, but this is how they say it. If you want to be a member of the church, to be a member in good standing, then you have to meet a certain criteria. criteria. You have to show up so many Sundays a year. You have to give so much money a year. And then if you do those things, and if you agree with, and sign on the dotted line, that you agree with these tenets of the faith, then you qualify to be a member of our congregation. And if you're a member in good standing, then you have voting rights when we take up a congregational vote. All of that is behavior first. That's all front-loaded with behavior. You've got to show up. You've you got to give money. You have to agree to believe the way that we believe. Then we'll decide whether or not you're in good standing and now you can belong. Guys, <laughs> that's the way of the religious spirit. That's the way of rules and regulation of men. That's the way of law. That's what Jesus came to break. It was obvious by the people Jesus picked as his disciples and the people he hung around with. They, they had this accusation against Jesus. They called him a friend of sinners. Now, I think that's a compliment. That wasn't a compliment in his day. That was an accusation. It's so clear by the way he operated that belonging came first. And all this other stuff followed after that's the way of life. That's the way of grace. The way of grace is that you belong first. And that other stuff will take care of itself later on. Watch for that. You want to see a religious spirit at work? Jesus drove it out of the church. He did it violently. You want to see it at work? It's rude. It's arrogant. It's self-righteous. It creates hoops for people to jump through. It makes you qualify front-end loaded with rules and regulations and signing on the dotted line and so much with attendance and so much with giving. Then we'll decide whether or not you can belong. You can be, quote-unquote, a member in good standing. There is a gravitational pull inside the hearts of men toward the law. There's a gravitational pull inside of us toward the rules and regulations of men. We have to resist it. We have to resist it. Because it'll set up shop <laughs> right, in, right in our very place of worship and try to take it over for their own selfish purposes. We cannot abide that. We cannot let that happen. We have to resist it. And how do we do that? We do that with some of the most powerful weapons in our arsenal. We love people extravagantly. We choose to live a life of grace. We value relationship above and before anything else. This is how we overcome a religious spirit. Jesus said, all men will know that you're my follower, that you follow after me, that you're one of mine. Jesus said, all men will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, how do we deal ruthlessly with a religious spirit? We do it with extravagant love. We do it with extravagant affection. We do it with extravagant grace. Okay, let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for your word today, for the truth and the power that's, that's in your word. Lord, I pray that uh, your word would have its full impact on us. And I pray for Shawtown Community Church. Lord, we're as susceptible to religious spirit as any other group out there. I pray that you would remove that from our midst. In the same way that you drove out the money changes, Lord, I pray that you would drive out a spirit of religion that would create hindrances and obstacles to full relationship with you. Drive it out, Lord. You deal with it. Lord, I pray that from this place forward that we would be a, a church that could love one another lavishly and extravagantly. That all men would know that we're yours. Because of the sign of love. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys.